So this whole thing is just about that. It's not for a personal legacy. It's for how others can just have a higher quality of life and seek out that true meaning. Because with it comes peace and trust and collaboration and a lower stressed existence. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. Join me in conversation with Dr. David Freiberg as I discuss kindness on just how contagious kindness is. Toxic stress can be a major trigger of disturbed sleep, leading to cellular inflammation and adverse impacts on your mental and physical health, well-being and overall vitality. Kindness creates the interpersonal connections to support relaxation from stress and reduce the response to toxic stress. Social supports provide a protective buffer against stress and promote resilience, in turn generating gratitude and positive emotions which can support kindness on a population basis. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. So I'm delighted to welcome Dr. David Freiberg to the podcast today. David has a special interest and expertise in kindness. So David, can you tell me about your early years as an undergraduate and as a doctor and what led you down the kindness path? I'm not entirely sure the early years affected it, but what I did know in by the time I was a medical student and then a resident was that the interaction with patients, that laying on of hands, was probably the most important dynamic, such that when I became faculty, I would tell um, the, the students and residents, don't go to a physical until you've really gotten a good history. In other words, to really talk to the patients, because the patients would always know what is really going on. And it was the of course, the physician's job to just help them sort it out so that they're, you know, it becomes translatable into a problem and a potential solution. So knowing that early on, that that interaction, the laying on of hands being a metaphor for really intimately just knowing somebody was important. That's an early start to try to address your question. And I think that's really important. I, I think as a doctor that intuitively many patients, they know what's wrong with them uh, or they know what they think is wrong and they want somebody to listen non-judgmentally to validate their reason for coming and to be present with them and share the uncertainty and share a plan and a, a way forward with them. I think you're absolutely right. 
Well, it is the number one reason, right, that patients will follow a physician's recommendations is that they think that the doctor actually cares about them. It's not as much about competence. It's about caring and compassion. So that it, it's a powerful statement, and it actually reflects most human interactions, right? Business deals are based in, do I trust that person? as much as you know, hard numbers might be, but it's really about trust and trust comes from you care about me. So my journey really evolved over time because I became, you know, I was supervising people and managing others. And then I moved to the pharmaceutical industry and eventually was managing and trying to lead a large group in both who were directly reporting to me, but more importantly, whom I was working with because we had multiple research sites around the world, um, including in the UK. And, you know, it's in large organizations in particular, people need to care about each other. While there's a natural competition, there's a want to caring. And, and really because what I started to realize is everybody needs to feel like they matter. They're connected. They have some role to play because we go, you know, this is a very natural human drive that um, Maslow, Frankel, and others described. And I tried to do that in my own way while I was a, a supervisor, you know, and, and uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. But eventually what really tripped this was that I became a consultant um, and wasn't in meetings all day and was reading the news a lot more. And this is about 10 years ago. And I got depressed, really saddened by the news. And I realized that it was my, the depth of that emotions or those emotions was directly proportional to how much I was reading the news. And when I leaned back and, and took all of this in, I went to like a good nerd, went to the literature and I found, wow, not only is that true and it's been shown before, but in addition, people wouldn't just worry about, for example, a war in Syria and think, oh, that, you know, that's sad they would actually worry about their own lives after reading about the war in Syria. And I thought that that was unfair. People really deserve the higher quality of life. And what I eventually came to call the visual diet, like the nutritional diet needs balance, the visual diet needs balance also. People need to see things that are positive and good that connect them to others. And so that's how I became more and more interested in kindness. And so the idea sprang up is, well, what if we had images of kindness and compassion and love, and we just shared them with people? And that's how this whole thing started. I think what's fascinating is how you're really highlighting how contagious emotion is, and how contagious the news is. Uh, you know, if it if it bleeds, it leads, and nothing spreads like bad, bad news. But what's interesting is you're highlighting is how that bad news in the news can actually impact your lived experience and your quality of life and your emotional bank account, as it were. Absolutely. And I, when I first realized this, I also went and surveyed a lot of friends and acquaintances just to find out, did they have the same reaction? What did they do about it? And universally, people did. And many of them 
either stopped watching the news or reading it all together, or they um, uh, had to titrate it into manageable aliquots in order to uh, survive. Roy Baumeister, he was on the podcast there a month or two ago, and he was talking about the low bad diet, this idea that, you know, because bad news is so potentially bad for us and so contagious, you need to have a lot of positive news to offset it. And he spoke about a ratio of at least four to one, at least four good news stories for every one. What are your thoughts on that? He is, you know, very well uh, known and established, very smart guy. He's done a lot of, made a lot of contributions to the field. And yeah, that I've heard time and again, that it takes a uh, I've heard five, somewhere between five and 10 to one to offset the impact of something that's negative. And it, part of it depends also on disposition, right? And there's something called mood congruence, where if I'm feeling this way about something, then uh, you know something else happens, my attitude towards that next thing is going to be affected by what happened previously. Um, and I've read a lot, a bunch of his papers um, on the subject. Um, so it's important, you know, look, I'm an endocrinologist. So I used to talk to people a lot about diets. And I coined the phrases, just as you are what you eat, you are what you see. And what if we had a way to help people rebalance this, as I mentioned, but we have to be able to do it quickly. Um, which means that we also have to be wary of the limits of language because people don't want to read anymore. And a description doesn't necessarily equal the same thing for different people. Something that would transcend the limits of language. So a person in Japan and a person in Ireland and a person in Chile would have a similar response, meaning because body language is universal, it transcends language. So the meaning of a smile is very similar across all of these cultures or an open hand versus a fist. Images were the way to go. And um, so we started gathering images and we had to uh, figure out um, ways to do that because although there are lots of stories that are in the world, some of them are Um, or weren't really fitting for our purposes. And we wanted to create something that was genuine, that was organic, there was, you know, and that would complement everything else that was out around there. So we've, over time, we've built um, a portfolio of thousands of these from over 120 countries. And then the next step, around the same time, Uh, My son and others, because we've done a lot of science in my background, were urging me to let's do a study. And I was initially reticent because I'm not a psychologist, but we recruited some psychologists to help. And what the short end of that study was in 400 people was that kindness images had about twice the effect on increasing joy and love and optimism and trust um, than positive or pretty images like puppies in a basket, bunnies, flowers, mother and child. Forget the neutral or the negative images that we were just talking about like would be in the news. 
And when we all looked back and saw this, it was really quite impressive because it said that there was something that was very important in here. It talked about, it, it sent me to go and read more about and study the biology and psychology of uh, altruism. Why are we kind to one another? What, what's, you know, wh why does this work? Because if, if we are really self-interested uh, and self-driven, and that kindness is a moral quality that gets imposed by society, by religion, by another culture, then this wouldn't be so readily the case. And it turned out that that was actually very different. There were two things that came out of that. And one of them was that from, in, if you look at the world as, as an evolutionary psychologist, which is a sub-discipline of psychology, um, is that, and Darwin wrote about this in his second book, that organisms, in order for the species to survive, have to help each other. That's the pressure. If, if we're thinking about things as, as nature wants us to survive, if that's an accepted fact for um, our biology and, and the, a prime driver uh, of nature, then surviving means I help somebody else when they need something because then w the likelihood of all of us surviving rises. The second and key observation that drove me further was that people who volunteer in multiple epidemiologic studies have mortality rates that are 20 to 40% lower than those who don't. Now, it's a complicated thing, right? There's a lot going on. And these studies were really surveying a lot of factors, including how much do people volunteer. But having said that, meta-analyses of those studies bear that out. They say, yep, that's the case. So it means that the connection that's created through kindness, this is my interpretation of all of this, that that connection is fundamental to survival. And we need it on several levels. The most simple and, and direct one is I sacrifice for you, you sacrifice for me. And sacrifice here is, you know, small things that doesn't have to be a big thing. A more complex level is that when we know that we're connected to one another, it means that I matter and you matter. We matter to each other. And therefore, we have value. You know, a cornerstone human requirement. You know, where's meaning? Where's purpose? And the rest of this ties, to, of course, to the negative. Um, the negative sense being loneliness, right? Which is associated with a 40% increase or so in mortality. So on one side is loneliness, on the other side is volunteerism and, you know, very positive interpersonal connections. And it's a continuum in my view, and kindness facilitates that shift. It allows for that connection to occur. Which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I'm reminded of this line, I'll take care of me for you, so you'll take care of you for me. That, that sense of interconnection, that you matter as well as me mattering, that we all matter, we all care for each other, that it's a hardware survival tool. And I suppose, David, you know, one, one of the things about kindness is just how contagious it is. It, it absolutely is contagious because uh, emotions are contagious, of course, mm -hmm. right? So 
if somebody walks into a room and just speaking simply and they're happy, the likelihood that the others in the room will be lifted and somewhat happier rises. And similarly, if somebody walks in and they're dour and they're down or they're angry, the, the negative emotions spread. So kindness is contagious because we have this neurophysiologic mechanism that makes us feel good when we see it or experience it. And then that is experienced by someone else. And then they feel good and then they pass it along. The other piece is that we tend to mimic each other, right? And both emotional contagion and mimicry, uh, mimicry uh, example is smiling at somebody. The likelihood that you're going to smile, that smile back at me, rises significantly. Or laughter is contagious. There are a lot of neurologic events or in and interpersonal that are just like that. And people talk about it as related to our ability to communicate about empathy. Um, but the teleology aside. It's just a well-established fact, which is so kindness is a subset of all of this other stuff that's really contagious. And can you explain to me, David, why, from your research, kindness is so beneficial? So the probably the center point here is around stress. We all experience stress to varying degrees, but no doubt, right, stress is either the prime cause or exacerbator of anxiety, depression, heart disease, sleeping disorders, diabetes, obesity. Essentially, a variety of uh, disorders are uh, linked to stress. Well, stress talks, creates this, yeah. auto, this sympathetic drive, an inflammatory reaction, a mm -hmm. sick syndrome. There are a variety of things depending on the stressor and, of course, the person. Toxic stress is the hidden killer in the Western world. I couldn't agree more. So if we know that connection, interpersonal connection, this is very well established by psychologists like uh, Roy uh, Baumeister, that connection buffers stress and promotes resilience. So now imagine the stressor comes along. So somebody has a financial issue, or in the US, gun control is a huge stressor. Climate change is now a huge stressor for people. Um, if political divide or division, there are all there are a variety of stressors, of course. And of course, the pandemic, even if people weren't sick, suffered from the stress of it. There's the response, and I'm saying this for the audience, of course, is that the response is that what our bodies do, how we react. So the stress response we're distinguishing from the stressor. So with interpersonal connection, the stressor might be the same, but our response to it is buffered, is lessened, just like in a way that meditation in and of itself can help buffer the response to stressors. So that's how I pull it together, is that kindness creates the connections which allow for a relaxation um, or lessening of the response to stressors. In addition, an indirect effect is it creates social support. So if you care about me, not only just knowing that is beneficial, but maybe, oh, you know, Mark's going to bring me 
a dinner tonight mm -hmm. um Over Zoom. and that will generate <laughs> be, i'm sure it'll be great too that will generate gratitude yes. a known factor right in promoting mental health so all of these things are related there are both direct and indirect effects um which if we can promote kindness just using that as a, a broad umbrella term on a population basis, imagine what the public health implications could be. Mm. I, it turns my gears every day and drives me to keep working on this. Well, I think it's so exciting. You know, kindness, the person being kind experiences benefits, the recipient of the kindness experiences benefits, and also a third party who witnesses the kindness can benefit. So I think that's really exciting. There's a kind of a threefold layer of benefit. Absolutely. And it's that third party, mm. the simple witness. So seeing it causes both the internal, emotional, physiologic response, but also because of mimicry, that person's going to go out and do something maybe like it, or maybe in their own way, it's interpretation of it. Do you believe kindness is an innate character strength, David? Or do you believe that kindness is a habit that can be learned and developed and cultivated? Actually, both. I agree. The, the innate part is demonstrable in toddler studies. So if you, psychologists have done studies, if the investigator drops a pen, for example, and it's a one and a half, two-year-old, the natural inclination for that child is to pick up the pen and hand it back to the investigator. Nothing is said. Others have shown in infants that there's, there's evidence for that too. So even going to an earlier age where modeling is less obvious or, or understood. Um, so there are plenty of uh, reasons to think that. The other reason to think that it's innate is that you see it in spe across species. It isn't just a human attribute. Ants, bats, rats, prairie voles, dolphins, elephants, as well as non-human primates, all their multiple examples where they will sacrifice for another. So it's not like they're saying, oh, that's my kin over there um, or someone who needs help. It's something that's innate. And then, of course, people mirror what they see. So to your point earlier, is it learned? Yes, because they will mirror what they see and that will affect their subsequent behavior um, in its own way. I think I read if you see a kind act, you're three times more likely to do something kind for someone else in the following 24 hours, the, the, the pro-social benefits of kindness. I, I haven't seen that same number, um, but I would definitely believe it. And one of the big challenges in healthcare, David, as you will know better than, than many people, is the whole area of professional burnout. And I was reading recently that more than 50% of physicians experience burnout in their careers. And, and even though these are caring professionals, caring can be wearing. And many people, particularly in the caring profession, particularly at the front line, they forget to take good care of themselves. They forget to be kind to themselves. They forget the importance of self-compassion. What would you say about the importance of kindness to self and self-care? It's absolutely a must. An important prerequisite, though, is the acknowledgement, and it's that struggle with ego, is the acknowledgement that we are imperfect. Mm -hmm. We make mistakes. And so the ability to accept that in being kind to oneself, and that's what I'm referring to it as, you know, some people might uh, 
you know, and I don't, I think that's also how you're referring to it. Um, some people might say, well, I, I, I deserve a Maserati or, you know, uh, some, you know, lavish gift. Um, but for the most part, I would interpret it as uh, people being harder on themselves, particularly healthcare providers who are, as you say, they went into the profession because they wanted to help people. That's why the vast majority of them are there and stick it out. Um, they didn't go in for riches, et cetera. The problem is, is that they get weighed down with a lot of different tasks and things that divert them from that, as well as, you know, what the patients bring in the room with them. David, can I ask you about your own health? How do you value health? How do you stay healthy yourself? Well, that's a great question. Um, I value health highly. For us in this profession, we've seen enough cases where when people didn't, how things go wrong. So we're part of a select group that understands how important it is. But beyond the physical, um, mental health is exceedingly important. So true, organic, grounded happiness, what um, some psychologists might call, uh, use a Greek term, eudaimonia. Yes. Um, that allows for this very quiet joy, I might put it as, a satisfaction. For me, some of it's come from practicing. I've been meditating for 25 years. Interesting. As an outgrowth of studying martial arts. And um, the meditation has been one of the greatest gifts uh, from the study. And in meditation, we talk about, obviously, there's mindful meditation. There's also loving kindness meditation, which is very much a form of expressed compassion and kindness radiating it outwards from your heart. Is that, is that something you espouse in your own practice? Of that I personally do? Mm -hmm. Yes. In, in fact, I, I merge several of them. Yeah. I merge that with um, there's a gratitude practice mm -hmm. uh, in meditation and then um, mindfulness. And then it, when the chatter slows down in my own mind, I can feel the what uh, Japanese, I believe, call mushin or the mm -hmm. empty mind starts to happen because I don't need to engage in the mindful practice as much like on breathing or aware somatic awareness, etc. Yeah, me too. I mean, I like, I like to have a sort of a, an unstructured structure to meditation. So you can have some mindful elements, some loving kindness elements, some gratitude elements, and, you know, really understand that the only rule is there are no rules and enter into that space of not knowing. I was listening to John Kabat-Zinn recently and he was explaining how mindfulness and heartfulness are really one and the same thing. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting idea. The idea that, that, you know, it's about getting back to being present, being compassionate, being open, being kind. Absolutely. And as I recall, he also would talk about it um, without judgment. Yes. Right. So it's awareness without judgment. It isn't good or it isn't bad. It's mm. just is. Mm -hmm. And that, that is allows us to then you connect to a greater whole because the, the, for me, it's helped me. And I, I'd be very interested in your experience. It's helped me understand how that we are all so connected in the same fabric. 
and that I may be one thread running through the fabric and there are millions of others mm -hmm. that we touch upon in the course of it indirectly and indirectly. Yeah, I mean, I have a term I use called living with vitality, David, and it's really vitality is that really that strong interconnection between, you know, emotion and physical and mind, spirit and sort of connection with the inner sense and essence of who you are and also with the outer environments that you spend your time in, like nature. And it really is so obvious how interconnected everything is. Yeah, and, and meditation helps with that awareness once you one can see it. The chatter drops, the ego story drops. Mm. It's not about me anymore. And you can see the whole. And when people can see that, that's when the epiphany or enlightenment really mm. occurs. Do you practice random acts of kindness, David? You might be familiar with Sonia Lyubomirsky. She talks about this idea of doing five random acts of kindness uh, every so often as a way to not just be better in the world uh, and to make the world a better place, but also to boost your own well-being and feeling of inner contentment. Absolutely. I mean, Sonia is a, a brilliant researcher mm -hmm. and she's done some very uh, important work and that pro-social acts like kindness yes. are the key to happiness. Laura Acknon also, um, a Canadian investigator, same idea. And it cre can create a cycle because the happier people feel, the more willing that they are, it's easier to give, which creates a virtuous cycle between the two of them. As regards whether it's um, five random acts, I think people, you know, it's they're comfortable and they sh do as much kindness as they can mm -hmm. and they'll be good. Um, five is a great way to at least set a goal. And some mm -hmm. people might, you know, uh, enjoy having that. Yeah, I think you're right. It's not about the number. It's 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 the actual doing it. Actions speak louder than words. And it's I think it's being intentional uh, in terms of choosing proactively to to be a kinder person. And I, I often think it's really the small things, David, you know, just maybe buying somebody a coffee or holding the door and just those small little gestures, uh, I think, can can add up to make a big difference. Totally agree. They send that message. You matter. Yes, I see you. So existence is cornerstone to that. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners, David, you know, if you were to give them three take homes for a more resilient mind or to bring more kindness and compassion into their lives, what might you say? Oh, it's a it's a good question. So we were talking about practicing kindness and it's really about respect for others and respect mm -hmm. for yourself. Mm hmm. And so that takes a little bit of also courage to then to try to drop that ego story. But in, you know, where we started, where was the story about media and the visual yes. diet? The other recommendation is consume a balanced diet. Think about the media you're consuming and how much and try to see things that are positive. There are lots of places that publish them. We create uh, kindness media for streaming into uh, places of higher stress like healthcare. But there are a lot of other sources um, in which good news can be uh, found. That's Envision Kindness, David, you mentioned there? Yeah, that's our uh, not-for-profit or the UK uh, charity. Fantastic. 
So with that regular practice, things will shift and the world will look different. And people would be asking the question, instead of reacting to what somebody might have said that might have not been as kind or thoughtful, um, they'd say, why did that person say that? Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Or, or ask. And before that reaction, even something like that, we can make the world smile a little more. I think you're absolutely right, David. We all have the power to choose how to respond. I mean, that was Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning, that ultimately we have that power to choose. And I think, as you highlighted, that mindful practice, the meditation, choosing to find moments of presence each day, it gives you more inner strength to be more present. And that enables you to better respond. Absolutely. And, and I always looked at, you know, it's been a few years now, but I've always thought of kindness as a meditation in its own sense. Interesting. Well, David, it's been a fascinating conversation. Finally, can I ask you for you, David Freiberg, what's the meaning of life? Helping others. Helping others. I think that's a terrific metaphor for being better in the world better to others, better to yourself, to be the change that you want to see. David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, wish you continued success leading in the area of kindness and compassion. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Been a privilege being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com. 